Well, today we dive into a, a very clear passage and one that will definitely convict us all. Again, as we are making our way through these passages, if you are not being convicted, you might not be alive spiritually. This is a very difficult or very challenging section of Scripture as Jesus exposes the law to us. Uh, I know there is a, uh, uh, a, a trend that has gone out in many of the uh, big seeker churches, seeker-sensitive churches, to do a series on uh, sex. And they will have these long 12-part series on this. There was even one pastor, unfortunately, that brought a bed up on the stage and began to preach his sermon from the bed. You say, well, that's crazy. Yes, it is. It's ultimately trivializing this very, very, very important subject. Today, I will do my best not to trivialize and make light of a very important issue and what Christ confronts here, and that is purity and the need for purity in our hearts. If Jesus is primarily focused on teaching his disciples in this sermon, a question comes. Why is he preaching the law to them? If they are disciples, why preach the law? This is the kind of question that gets us in a lot of trouble. It creates a false dichotomy between grace and the law of God. And those sermons that many of those uh, big secret churches will do on this subject of intimacy will make it all about just enjoying the bedroom. Missing really the point of examining our hearts and making sure we do things to honor God. It's very, very important, beloved, that we understand that God takes serious what our hearts are doing, what we're thinking on, what we're meditating on, what we're applying of the law to our heart. Please hear me. Obedience to the law is not the way we are delivered from sin. We are not delivered by, we are not made right with God by obeying the law of God. We understand that, right? But obedience to the law is required to be saved. What? That sounded like a contradiction, didn't it? It's not. Hear me out. God's law is His righteous standard. And every single one of us is required to have that righteous standard. We must have perfect obedience. Your obedience must be perfect like your heavenly Father, as He says down in verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You say, well, how in the world am I going to do that? Because after these sermons, I am not perfect. Everybody's already feeling that, right? The weight of that? The answer is, is Christ. Christ came into the world and he did what? Perfect obedience. He obeyed the law perfectly. And when we, who are not perfect, repent of our sins and trust in Christ, all of his obedience is credited to our account and therefore we are right with God. And that's a glorious truth, isn't it? 
That's a great truth that we know that every time we blew it, if we repented and trusted in Christ, His obedience is put in our account. And then, the Spirit of God takes up residence in our souls and directs us to obey the law of Christ. We then seek to obey Him. So as children of God, we are now empowered by the Spirit to obey Christ's exposition of the law here. We are not bound up by traditions of men. We are joyfully under the law of Christ. We are the king's subjects. We do what he wants us to do. We do it, why? Because he's delivered us from sin and bondage to sin. We now enjoy Christ and we want to obey his explanation of the law. We love like he loves. We avoid sin like he avoided sin. We kill sin if it arises in our hearts because we love him. So today we continue our study of Christ's exposition of the law. Remember, Jesus began by explaining the, the blessed followers of Christ and their resulting attitudes and actions. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus then gave an overview of the mission of the disciples, that we are to be the salt and light of the world. We're supposed to be distinct and different and show off the glory of Christ to the world. Next we learn that Jesus explained the way to God. That He is ultimately the way. When we repent and believe in Jesus, we then follow Him. And we walk in His footsteps by grace, through faith in Him. And we fulfill the law of Christ. Then last week we saw... We started the section where Jesus began to explain the law. He gives an exposition of some of the Ten Commandments and some of the law. And we covered this first antithetical statement Jesus gave to his disciples. Again, an antithetical statement is a statement that opposes the oral traditions of the religious ones of Jesus' day. Jesus gave six of these statements in this section that we're in. Six statements explaining, uh, the six statements of explanation of the law. These antithetical statements. They contradicted the Pharisees and the scribes' wrong interpretation of the law. The religious elites had taken the law and made it, lowered it actually, so that they could jump over it, but not, it only dealt with the outside of the cup instead of the inside. This is Jesus right here in this section, exposition of the law. His explanation of the law. At the same time, he corrects this wrong works righteousness view of the law. That is, if I obey, then somehow I've earned credit with God and therefore he's going to accept me. He contradicts that. The Pharisees had taken the law and reinterpreted interpreted it so that they could... Do it so they could accomplish it. They made the law an outward, external show of self-righteousness. But notice several times in this section, Jesus says, You have heard it said, but I myself say to you. That's the idea here of what they said and what they thought and their interpretation of the law of God was wrong. Let me correct it. 
and tell you what it's really all about. What the law of God calls us to do. So that first antithetical statement that we looked at, this correction of the religious elites, was the sixth commandment. What's the sixth commandment? Anybody know right off the top of your head? Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not murder. Did I say it right? Some of you are looking at me like I'm wrong. Okay. I'm like, uh-oh. Did I miss it? I know I wrote it down. Thou shalt not murder. Each of these six antithetical statements have three parts to them. In other words, he, he explains what the oral tradition is. And it expand, it, their expansion of the law. And then the Lord corrects this expansion and gives a correct exposition of the law. And then finally the Lord gives his application of the law. This is what we saw last week as he began to unfold and explain the law of God. We saw last week that the oral tradition ignored the heart behind murder. The religious ones thought murder was wrong and perishable or punishable, right? And most of us in the room would agree. If somebody murders somebody, we all say, that's wrong and it should be judged, right? Everybody in the room? Yes? Okay. But what Jesus says is it's more about what's going on in the heart. Because where it starts is in the heart. And he states that the sixth commandment was ultimately trying to show that the heart of man is wicked above all else. And that it needs to be examined because it starts with anger or bitterness and contentment towards others. Contempt towards others. Jesus confronted this wrong thinking. He explained anger towards one's brother was worthy of judgment. He left, no, he, he left it very uh, general. And it, it brought um, many questions to our hearts. Is there such thing as righteous anger? Are we allowed to be angry ever? And the answer is yes. But he wasn't even discussing that. He left it very generic. And the reason behind it is, is he was trying to call the listeners to do what? Examine their hearts. Look deep with inside. Find out whether your motives of your anger are correct. That's what he was looking for. He, explained, he stated that treating others with contempt and calling others names was worthy of internal, eternal judgment. If we look down on others with contempt, we are a murderer at heart. Then Jesus applied his exposition of the law to how we must seek to be at peace with all men. We must seek right relationships with other brothers. We must seek reconciliation with our brothers and sisters at all costs. This is what we're about. As light in the world, we are those that... We seek everything we can to make sure that we're at peace with all men. Jesus was turning the light on to that corrupt religious system of his day. By the way, what makes Jesus truly remarkable is he practiced what he preached all the time. This is what makes me marvel at Jesus. Let me, let me just tell you like it is. As a pastor... One of the hardest things to do is to stand up here and to preach these sermons to you. You understand that often I'm convicted by the same things. 
And I know that I stand up here and say, hey, this is what God's Word says, and I'm supposed to live it, and I can honestly say that I don't do it 100% of the time. But I know who did. He was the preacher that when he preached, he actually lived exactly what he said all the time. What a good God, right? What an amazing Savior. What a rock and a redeemer as we sang about, right? He's our hope. He not only knew the truth, but he lived it. And he lived it perfectly, righteously. He never returned revile for revile, as Peter states. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's, that's not us, is it? <laughs> Often when we're, we're threatened or somebody comes at us, what's the natural tendency? To return that revile, to, to get angry or to get bitter. And maybe we don't say anything, but where's it? what's happening inside of our hearts? <laughs> We're still thinking it. Have you ever, have you ever heard that, had this happen to you? You might be thinking this. You might be thinking, well, I'm not going to respond to that comment. I'm going to keep it to myself. I'm not even going to talk to you. What is that? That's murderous heart. <laughs> it's the same thing. <laughs> Whenever we clam up and don't discuss or are unable to show love to somebody that then says something unkind to us, we're doing the same thing. This is what Jesus was saying. No, we might not voice, you're a fool, but we can say it in our hearts and it's the same thing, isn't it? Jesus is confronting this idea. See, the Pharisees had said it's all about the external. If you murder somebody, that's taking it too far. Do you understand? If you hit somebody and murder them out of your anger, it's really not about the anger, it's about hitting them. If you hit them, you pay. Jesus says, no, the law, thou shalt not murder, was supposed to show you that you have a heart problem. And ultimately starts with bitterness and anger and looking at others with content. Contempt, rather, and hatred and jealousy. No human, however, has spoken so perfectly and yet also backed it up as Jesus. So today we move on to the next antithetical statement by Jesus. He continues to explain the fallacies of the oral tradition. He gives a correct exposition of the law and then he gives the application for our hearts. Each of these are found in each of the six antithetical statements. It's very easy to follow. You're going to see them over and over and over again. So let's move on to the next part of Jesus' exposition of the law. So we can know and embrace the king's righteous standards for his subjects. Let's look at the first one. A radical commitment to our purity. A radical commitment to our purity. Look in verse 27. It states, you have heard that it was said. Again, what's he doing? That's the oral tradition. He's bringing it up. Now, it's almost a direct quote from the law, but here it goes. 
You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, there's the antithetical statement. Here's the thing saying the opposite. But I say to you, not the opposite, but a clarification. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Wow, right? The question that so many people are, when you read a passage like this, it comes to mind immediately is, okay, am I supposed to gouge out my eye? Really? And they skip the first part. So we need to develop this and why he even brings up the idea of gouging out your eye and cutting off your hand. Those extreme things are a reaction to ultimately a heart issue that we need to address. And that's what Jesus does. Look at the oral tradition. At the beginning, in verse 27, he directly quotes from Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. You might say, well, how is this the oral tradition? What's wrong with it? That's in the Bible. Well, nothing was wrong with the law of God. Nothing was wrong with Exodus 20.14. It had to do with how they understood it and how they implied it. That's very important. This is an important point for all of us to understand here and get. We can get the word, but apply it wrong and miss the whole point too. Do you hear me, beloved? We can actually have a passage and interpret it wrong and therefore apply it wrong and be completely off base also. We need to know what God meant when he wrote it. And we need to stick with what he says. Even if it goes against what we want to do. This commandment was similar to the previous one. You shall not commit murder. The problem was, during Jesus' day, the religious elites made loopholes. Loopholes in their rules that allowed for men to be with certain women, even if they weren't their wives like prostitutes or virgins or legally divorced women. So, they made all kinds of little loopholes that allowed for them to commit adultery, but not do it in their view. They made it, quote-unquote, legal to do. And that made it, what? Right to do. But that's what? Not the heart of God. Beloved, just because the legal system says we can do something doesn't mean that it's okay. Just because it's a consensus or an oral tradition or a cultural mandate or whatever, that doesn't make something right or wrong, does it? What makes something right or wrong is ultimately what God says about the subject. What God thinks about the subject. That's what we must believe and that's what we must submit to. We'll see an example of this in the next statement. 
However, like the command, thou shalt not commit murder, it was meant to point to a bigger problem with the heart of mankind. This command also put, points to a bigger problem. <clears throat> when it says, you shall not commit adultery, it's talking about something bigger, something more important. <clears throat> if adultery was forbidden, then it showed the heart of man is so wicked that this sin is not only possible, but probable apart from God's grace. Do you hear me? It's not only possible, but probable. That's why the command was given. Don't be rude to your, system, uh, your siblings. If I, if I make that statement, I say, don't be rude to your siblings. It implies what? Being rude to your siblings is a high possibility. Matter of fact, it will happen. Don't be unkind to your sister. It implies what? You have a propensity to be unkind to your sister. You have a heart that wants to be unkind. That's what he's doing with these laws. That's what he did. He was laying out the law of God to the people when Moses handed it down to show them you need God because you have a heart that has a propensity to what? Murder. Commit adultery. This is our hearts. Why does it say honor your father and mother? Well, it's because your father and mother deserve honor. No, that's not really what his point is. That's not really the main point, is it? The main point is this. To honor your father and mother is not something that comes natural to us. In fact, because of our sin nature, we want to dishonor them. We want to do our own thing. We want to be our own king. We don't want to honor anybody in authority over us. The law of God was supposed to show us that mankind had a bad heart. <laughs> All of us have a bad heart. All of us are prone to disrespect authority and be evil. However, the the Jews of their day had made this commitment to avoid adultery only about outward expressions of this sin. And they could apply it to those that didn't care at all about anything, but then make a loophole for themselves. It kind of reminds me, remember, uh, the start of the church in England wasn't necessarily a great thing. The reason why is because the king wanted to marry a woman that he wasn't supposed to. He was already married to somebody else. And the pope wouldn't let him do it. So what did he do? <laughs> Let's break off from the church. Let's break off the church so I can marry this woman. And now I'm the head of the church. And I say that my marriage wasn't legit. What happens? This is the way things work. This is our hearts. The Jews of that day would twist the meaning to allow certain types of sexual promiscuity. They allowed prostitution because they weren't married. Those ladies weren't married. They allowed divorce for pretty much anything in order to free themselves to marry others. In other words, if your wife burnt the food, oh, she showed she was unclean, she can be divorced. 
You were waiting for her to burn her food so you could commit adultery with some other woman. There's something wrong with that, isn't there? It's called a justification in the soul. This is what the lost mind and heart does with the law of God. It seeks ways around the requirement in order to participate in the sin. It looks for loopholes to fulfill its lustful desires. Beloved, I want to warn you, this is your heart too. Everybody, my heart. We all, apart from the grace of God and apart from faith in Christ, we all have a tendency to look for a loophole to allow for our lustful desires to be fulfilled. Jesus confronted this wrong view interpretation in his exposition of the law in verse 28. Notice, he states in 28, verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus explains that the heart is where the sin starts. The seat of our, our, of our decisions and our emotions. It is the lust for a woman that is the root problem of adultery. Adultery is a symptom of a lusting heart. Lust for someone the Lord has not given us to marry is the wicked root of adultery. The problem for the human heart is it craves what it does not have. Is that not true? The lost heart especially doesn't care what God's provision is. It just wants what satisfies it. It craves self-gratification. It craves what it can't have. It craves what it shouldn't have. It craves what is ultimately bad for it. Why? Because Adam and Eve fell. And when Adam and Eve fell, we all have that what? Wretched heart. That's us. We're all there. Is anybody excluded from that in this room? <laughs> no. You were all born, we were all born with that same wicked heart. Every one of us. And the heart is wicked above all else. Who can understand it? We don't even realize how wicked we really are. It's very, very important for everyone in this room to understand this about yourself. And you must understand that these were disciples. So he's speaking to people that most of them, at least some of them, were regenerate. They were already born again. So the propensity is still there. This idea of struggle, this desire, this lust is still present in our souls. We are born with hearts that crave what will kill us and will bring judgment upon us. No one is exempt from this wickedness. That the law of God told the children of Israel do not commit adultery should be like cold water on every one of us. It should wake us up and say, uh-oh, I could do this. We are all capable of this sin apart from an abiding relationship with the one who never committed adultery. We must walk with Him. We must depend upon Him. We must enjoy Him to avoid and kill this sin in our own hearts. We see evidence that 
We are born with adulterous hearts everywhere, don't we? You see it. Come on, everybody's seen it probably this week, haven't we? Sensuality and provocative allurements are everywhere. Why do advertisers use explicit material in their ads and commercials? Because they know that it will make people look at the article and the ad. That's all they're doing. They're trying to do what? Sell their product. Why are they? Well, what works at selling the product? Get the person to look at the ad. How do you get people to look at the ad? Put something that the lustful heart will look at. That's what they're doing. Ultimately, they're just wanting to get money. They want more money. Their greed is causing them to do this. But they know how provocative material will drive us to look at it. The company is all about the bottom line, and they know what makes the human heart pay attention. Sensuality. You want to have a thriving business? Use sensuality. That's what the world says, right? By the way, if you really want to have a Christian business, often what that will mean is you can't use the same allurements that the world uses to get people to buy your product. Which means what? You might have a harder time. So what are you going to do? Follow Christ! Jesus exhorted his disciples to recognize adultery starts with lust. The world tradition came up with the escape passages, like I said, to the law for allowing adultery. But Jesus says, you already... You are already an adulterer at heart when you lust for someone that God specifically forbids. So Jesus turned to the solution. Look at the solution in verses 29 to 30. The solution. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. By the way, it's very clear. Who preached on hell? Jesus did. He believed in hell. Why? Because he made hell for those that would be judged for rejecting God and their sin. This is where application to the truth is made. This is where Jesus says, okay, I've explained what the law says and what it's all about and what's the point of the law. Now he's going to say, how does it apply? How, what should we do? But we know here that Jesus is not saying literally gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. Why do we know that he's not literally saying gouge out your eye and cut off your hand? You know, some people have taken this Literally, Origen castrated himself with the whole idea that somehow he would be able to keep his lustful heart in check. I guess he didn't read his Bible, did he? Not in this section. Because if you eliminate one eye, what's going to happen if you eliminate one eye? Yeah, I got another one. And he didn't say gouge out both eyes, did he? 
I think he was trying to make a point. What do you think? Also, if you cut off one hand, that doesn't mean you can't use the other one, right? And by the way, there could probably be handless people and eyeless people that could still do these wicked sins. Jesus' point is, radical steps should be taken to avoid lust and the resulting sensual sins. Radical steps must be taken to avoid these sins. This section is all about human responsibility. <laughs> this is what we're responsible to do. We must kill lust in our hearts by the Spirit that is working in our souls. We must make war with this lust in our hearts. We must make war with it all the time, everywhere we go, in all places, because it's a killer. He's using hyperbole. You understand that. Now, the mortification process or the killing process requires doing whatever is necessary to eliminate this sin in our lives. Some people say, well, well, if I get this program that will help to discuss, show what I'm doing on the Internet, I know how to get around it. Well, that's not going to stop it. Well, I don't know about you, then I would find something that helped me stop it. Gouge out the eye, cut off the hand, throw the computer away if that's necessary. Do whatever it takes to kill the lust. Now again, we understand that where it starts is in the heart. And what we must do is confess that sin and repent of the sin when it even enters our mind. When does it enter our minds? Believe it or not, it doesn't enter our minds once we start looking. It probably started when you were contemplating looking. It started way back when when you were saying in your mind and in your heart and in your thoughts, I'm going to go pursue this that I shouldn't pursue. That's when it needed to die. Not when you've got your computer open and you're like, oh, I wish I could get out of this. Too late. You've already been sinning. You've already been feeding your heart with this wickedness. Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, consider the members of your body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. We must make war with lust in our hearts, beloved. This means we need to avoid doing things that can cause us to desire what God has not given us at the moment. How do we kill sin like this? Well, first and foremost, we must have an abiding relationship with Christ. He doesn't talk about this in the section, but I have to admit to you, I have to take a break here and give you some hope. <laughs> okay? I want to tell you how. And the reason why is because his point was to get them crushed so that they would look to him. So he would give them the answers. But he's given us answers. That's the good news. We must 
look to Him. We must have an abiding relationship with Christ. We must have one of those relationships that wakes in the morning, reads our Bibles, spends time in prayer, talking to the Lord, asking for protection, helping us to know that where we're going, planning out our day with Him in our minds, asking Him to direct us as we go about our day. And a relationship that whenever faced with temptation, knows and has been trained to where? To go to Him immediately. When the temptation draws into our souls, we must cry out, God, help me! Help me! Help me! Our attention and our affections must be set on Him. You know, I, I was... I, I don't know about you, but... Uh, the first song that we sing, what was the first song? Help me. What was it? Blessed Assurance. Happy all the day. Those end at the end of it. Happy all the day, right? Well, that is true when I'm abiding with Christ. But unfortunately, I don't know about you guys, but I'm not. Uh-oh. I don't always abide with Christ every minute of the day. And it's those moments that I'm not really abiding with Christ that I'm vulnerable to the lusts of the heart. That's why He must be our fixation. He must be our... He is our God and He must be who we think on and meditate on and, and delight in. Our attention and our affection must be set on Him, not the things of this world. Because as we set ourselves and our thoughts on the things of the world, then guess what happens? We're led astray by the world. As we bask in the glory of Christ, anything He has not given to us becomes unwanted for us. Did you hear me? I'll say it again. Listen closely. As we bask in the glory of Christ and how good He is and how satisfying He is, anything that He has not providentially given to us, we don't want. We're satisfied with only Him. We don't need anything else. That's how we kill lust. What is lust? Lust is a desire for something, ultimately, that God hasn't given us yet. But ultimately, it is saying, I am not satisfied with Christ at the moment. When we are enjoying Christ, our desires for what He wants us to have become heightened. And our desire for what He doesn't want us to have becomes little as we enjoy Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't always explain how we can avoid these sins. He just tells us that we are required to avoid them or judgment is coming for those who practice the sin. This should crush all of us in the room. You say to yourself at this point, well, I don't have a problem with lust. It's my spouse that has the issue. Well, let me explain something extremely important that everyone needs to understand and embrace. The object, the object of your lust, the idols of your heart may be different for, uh, for different people, but they are still just as sinful in the eyes of God. Do you hear me? This is so important. We must understand this. 
Because I don't know about you, but the escape hatch, the loophole that we all have in our souls is this. Well, at least my sin is not as bad as that person's. That's the loophole that we do. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did with the law. That's exactly what they did with the law. The loophole was this is worse than that. And so I'm okay. That does not make it right for a man to lust. No, both are wrong. Both are sinful. Any lust, any idol in the heart is sinful. And it must be what? Killed, slayed, destroyed, fought against. The lust of your heart can be anything from wealth, health, or just a good spouse that serves your needs. What? That can literally be an idol. If I just had a husband that loved me, or a wife that loved me, that can even be an idol. I've found over the years that often affairs don't start with sexual attraction anyway. They start with unmet desires in spouses that someone else is willing to fulfill. Doesn't make it right. Do you understand? It doesn't make it right. But let me give you an example. Communication. <laughs> Communication, I know in here, all of you are like, I wish my spouse would communicate with me more. I agree. I, we need to talk. It's right. This is right. But even that can become an idol in our hearts if we're not careful. And then if we're in a workplace and what happens is if somebody starts to communicate with us. I've seen ladies fall into this. They're not thinking, I want sexual intimacy. They're thinking what? I just want a spouse that will talk to me. Somebody to talk to me. And so that becomes the avenue. And it goes both ways. All of us have these things, these lusts and desires in our hearts that have to be killed. And they often start with unmet desires. Lust for sexual intimacy is, isn't the only lustful idol, though, that our hearts produce. For a man, sometimes it can be one of these. I just wish my wife would honor me. I wish she would show me respect that I deserve. They don't say that I deserve at the end because they've heard too much Reformed theology. So they throw that one off and they say, I just want respect. But doesn't the Bible say that? Honor your husband? Isn't it amazing how we can actually take laws imperatives of scripture and use them as idols for our hearts as supporting this is what they did with the law of God if you apply the scripture to other people not yourself then guess what it can be actually an idol that's amazing to me Friends, we need to be careful. We need to understand that our hearts are wretched. 
Again, I bring up the race issue, and I think it's so important. I think we've, we've, all of us are overreacting all the time. We're always overreacting to these things. We hate the idea of anybody confronting us with anything ever, especially if I didn't really do it. I've come with a new thought process on this issue. Uh Uh-oh, new? No, I think it's biblical. Listen closely. Here it is. Somebody accuses me of racism that I really don't believe I have done. I can say this beyond a shadow of a doubt. At my heart, at my heart, I'm a murderer, adulterer, rapist at heart. (laughs) Apart from the grace of God, a racist, I'm all of that. Nobody can see. Again, what does that have to mean? That has to mean what? That I know how wretched I really am. Does that mean that I go all the way over and I go into all of this social just? No. But I can tell you my heart. And I can tell you about your heart. And the heart is the same as what the Scripture says here. And he's saying it over and over and over. And that is what? We're all angry murderers. He's talking to disciples. We're murderers, all of you. Did you know that? You're adulterers at heart. At this point, you're like, well, okay. I'm one of those. Get on with it. I think it's at this place I need to stay much, much more than thinking high of myself. For it's when I see myself as who I am apart from Christ, I look up and say, Christ, you're my only hope. Look, my value is found in Christ and Christ alone. You... You're looking at just a man like you. I'm no different. I need Christ. I need the Spirit to work in my heart. I am nothing without Him. You say, well, no, you've got to be a pastor. (laughs) You've missed the whole point of the Scriptures. Only Jesus could preach a sermon and live it perfectly. Is this a way for me to justify sin? No! It's a way for me to say, I am a sinner. It's who I am, apart from Christ. It should cause all of us to do what? Look up! Look away from your soul. Look away from yourself. Look out to Christ. Now this doesn't mean, listen, he's not trying to create some kind of self-righteous groveling over myself. I'm not supposed to walk around, woe is me, I'm the wretched, miserable, wicked, murderer, rapist, racist, ugly person all the time. That's not what he wants. You know what that is? That's false pride too. Both of those are wrong. 
What he wants is broken, dependent people. That's what he wants. That's what Jesus is preaching here. That's what he wants his disciples to do. He wants them to do what? Help, Lord. Help, Lord. And it's all going to climax as we go through Matthew. Guess what it's going to climax in? Him giving what? Help. (laughs) As he walked in and as he started to speak and as he proclaimed these sermons and as he began to show what the law required and the righteous standard really was, everybody was ultimately condemned. He came into the world to show God. And everybody what? Failed. Everybody falls short. But God. Christ Christ Jesus came into the world and died on a cross to pay for our wretched souls and to free us from this sinful way. So look with me. We'll close with this one. Verse 31. We must have a sacrificial commitment to our spouse. I'm not going to develop completely, but I think it's a great illustration. And he uses it and he kind of builds on it. The next one will build on this one, which is very interesting. A sacrificial commitment. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I'm fairly sure we could spend several messages just on these two verses. But I want you to understand something. These passages are not supposed to be Jesus' full disclosure or discourse on marriage and divorce and whether it's okay and whether it's wrong. I think he's trying to make a main point. Again, it will be developed in Matthew 19. I want you to get it. Jesus expects a sacrificial commitment to one spouse if they are married and disciples of his. He has a standard that says marriage should be very important. Very important. We must take it seriously. God didn't establish it for just something whimsical. Again, what did the Pharisees do? They found ways, loopholes to allow for divorce for any reason. But we can't go down that road. You see the pattern. It was written, whoever sends his wife away... Let him give him or her a certificate of divorce. This was the oral tradition that arose from Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. There aren't a lot of details here on this tradition that Jesus gives, but here's the gist. The religious men had made divorce easy and acceptable for just about any reason. The oral tradition had stated that if the wife did anything, like I said, burn the toast, that was deemed unacceptable... To the husband, he could divorce her. And what is that? Sin. But God expects sacrificial commitment to our spouses. Notice he says, but, but I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery. 
And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus does give the exception clause. But it's very limited compared to the leaders of his day. Jesus was confronting the wicked worldview of their time. He was calling his disciples to a higher standard. And he's calling us to a higher standard too through this, isn't it? It's very clear. Now inevitably at this point, there are thousands of questions that come to everybody's mind, right? We're all sitting here, well, does he believe this? What does he think about this? What about if I've divorced? What does that mean? Everybody in the room's battling those thoughts, right? Don't miss the point. That's what we do with the law of God and the commands of God often. We water it down and make it some kind of theological debate. Get the main point. You ready? Main point. Love your spouse sacrificially. Be committed to them till death do you part. That's his point. That's his standard. That's what God wants. We need the message and this message in our culture too. I want you to remember Jesus is trying to get the disciples to see what is the standard and who they really need. I want you to think this way too. Beloved, we have a real problem in our culture and our society with sacrificial commitment, don't we? We are good with self-seeking commitment. That's what we like. Self-seeking commitment. I think often people are committed as long as they are getting their love tanks filled. But if their love tank isn't filled, then I'm out of here. Now listen, you're in, some of you in the room saying, well, well, does that apply to me? Is there something in me? I think every even married person that's never been divorced, would, if we were all honest, we would say that we haven't been sacrificially committed to our spouse our entire marriage. Everybody in the room, right? Why? Because, again, it's about our hearts. You say, well, I've loved my husband the whole time. Really? <laughs> you might need to go back and listen again. <laughs> because unless you're the only selfless person on the planet right now, you're mistaken. We're okay. Our society is okay with loving somebody as long as we're getting our desires met. And I want you to hear me and I want you to listen closely because this one really applies. In the same way I tried to balance the, the lust thing and get the wives to look, I want you to listen, men. Your wives are working really, really hard. They're doing many, many things. If they're not this great person that comes to you with this smile on their face with their hair glowing and everything's perfect and you walk in and they say oh I love you this is wonderful that you're home may I do anything for you you're looking for the wrong thing and you probably have something going on in your heart 
that has great high expectations on everybody else, but you're unwilling to look where? This is that self-seeking love that our planet and our culture demands. The world does this great. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. I mean, it's in all the phrases we have. You give me something, I'll give, I'll, I'll, I'll give you something in return. You know what that is? That is not sacrificial love. That is self-seeking love, isn't it? I know I'm going long-winded, but you've got to get it. Come on, hang in there. Y'all can do this. If it, requires, if it requires sacrifice and taking the L occasionally, nope, I'm not going to have that. When was the last time that you actually allowed your spouse to think different than you? This is so important. In our hearts, down deep in our souls, we have this self-seeking idea that everybody has to think like me. That's not sacrificial love. That is sin. Do you understand? We're much more like the Pharisees than we think we are. Divorce was a problem in Jesus' day because primarily the men could dump a wife if he felt anything wasn't being met. Now, I believe it's an equal opportunity offender situation. Much more. Men and women divorce because they aren't being satisfied by their spouses. But beloved, we do not marry, we do not marry to get our satisfaction from a spouse. Do you understand? If you're married because you, what the person gives you, you married for the wrong reason. We marry to sacrificially love a person. But Pastor Mike, you don't know my spouse. You don't know how infuriating he is. You don't know how draining she is. You don't know how unloving he is. No, I probably don't fully understand how unloving and unkind your spouse is. I, I probably don't, but I can tell you this. I know I'm a wretched sinner. So my poor wife has to deal with one of them regularly. But ultimately, it's not about me anyway. Because ultimately, it's about who? Christ. He knows fully. He understands exactly he knows exactly what an unloving spouse is all about, doesn't he? You know why? Jesus is committed to selfish, sinful people who really have never done anything for him on their own. Oh, did you hear that? Take note, beloved. Take note. Jesus is committed, and I'll say it again, and I think this is where we'll end. He's committed to a selfish, sinful person who really has never done anything for him on their own. And it's you. That's, that's me. Sure am glad he's sacrificially committed, right? To his bride. I know this is hard, beloved. Beloved. <laughs> 
But I want you to get one main thing from this. Me and you fail, but we have a Savior that loves us despite us. Don't miss this. In the numerous times that I've failed, I still have a a Savior who is rock solid for me. I don't know about you, but I couldn't get through this sermon without breaking down at the feet of Jesus saying, Help! We need Christ, don't we, beloved? We have a Savior that came into the world to die for sinners like me and you. And He loves selfish, sinful, unfaithful, wicked people like us. So let's turn to Him. Let's abide in Him. Let's trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this Word. Thank You for Christ. Thank You for laying it out clearly that we have a heart problem that we have a heart problem that doesn't want to be committed to anybody but ourselves. we have a heart problem that is constantly seeking to elevate ourselves God we need you please help us Lord help us to see our sin above seeing the sin of others And help us to bask in the glory of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Help us to realize that he loves us despite us. I pray, Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know that love of Christ, that doesn't understand just how much he loves them, I pray that today they will recognize their sin, realize what he has done for them, and repent of their sin and trust in him. Turn from their sin and trust in you. Please help us, God, to abide in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.